Got questions? We've got answers. Welcome to our first AMA session where we invite you to ask me and Matt anything. Let's get started. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. I guess technically we should have called it an A-M-M-A. Oh my gosh, you're such a (laughs) nerd. (laughs) Well, it's Ask Me and Matt anything. (laughs) I guess that's true. It works. It still works. I thought that would be too much for the advertisements. And no one would know what it means either. (laughs) So before we get started, I want to do just a little bit of housekeeping real quick. First, if you've been enjoying our content, please show your support by giving this video a like, subscribe, and share. Or if you're listening to the audio podcast, just take a moment to leave us a five-star review either on Apple or Spotify. It really helps us attract sponsors and be able to promote a lot of our programs for kiddos. Another reminder, Respite Nights are officially on the fourth Friday of the month on the audio podcast. That fourth Friday will be replaced with an IRL episode. So you will hear another guest interview to replace that missing content. If you want to see the Respite Nights, those will be only available on the YouTube and Facebook Live channels. The new format is moving forward with three episodes of the podcast followed by one IRL a month, and that'll just be consistent for every month. If you have not yet, please join our newsletter by visiting our website at autismwish.org. We will send you updates and exclusive invitations to our gifting programs and other content. So make sure to do that because we've been having some issues with the newsletter and I know that some people's emails have gotten deleted. So if you've signed up before, go ahead and make sure you do it again just to make sure you're still in our system. And now let's go ahead and get started. (laughs) Well, I'm happy you keep track of all that because my organization skills are not on par. (laughs) So I'm happy you're in charge. (laughs) Well, it's because I'm kind of neurotic and all over the place. That's part of that autistic anxiety where you basically have to control everything because you cannot deal with unanticipated things. So you have to make sure everything is anticipated and you've got a plan for it. (laughs) Fair enough, because I can't even tell you what the fourth Thursday of the month is, but yep, (laughs) it's on the schedule. So let's go with that. So for today's AMA session, if you've never joined an AMA, that essentially is a live Q&A session. However, questions are not limited to autism specifically. So if you have some rando question you want to ask us about, like, I don't know, what's your favorite color or something like that, we're accepting all questions. So long as they are appropriate, of course. Let me just put that disclaimer out there. We have already accepted questions through our email that were sent in. So we have a couple questions that have come in that way. And then, of course, feel free to submit some through the chat. As we are going through this episode, we will go ahead and answer those questions for you. And we might even shout out your comment on the bottom of our screen. So let's go ahead and start. You can go ahead and kick it off. We have one that just popped in. All right. It looks like Matthew Stevens. I'd love to hear about ways to travel with two autistic toddlers. I found that I'm also autistic a few months ago. Wow, that is so interesting because I feel like it's more and more common now that parents of autistic kids are now realizing that they themselves are autistic. That's actually how I found out I was autistic. My kids got diagnosed first. Sidebar, though. But it's interesting that you bring up this traveling one because if you have not yet checked it out, Matt and I actually recently interviewed Don M. Barclay, 
And her interview is on our YouTube channel right now. So if you go to youtube.com slash at autism wish, we have the interview on there still. And she specifically is like an autism travel expert. That interview goes into a like 30 minute deep dive into traveling specifically with autistic children. So if you're looking for like a really deep dive, I would definitely recommend that you take a look at that video. She also has a book that she talks about in that interview. And so those would be like the first two things I would say to start. For some key highlights, Matt, do you have any? She had been in the travel industry for the bulk of her entire career. I can't remember if it was like 20 years plus. And it was basically kind of the experiences that she had come to see as far as like hotels and resorts that are being autism certified, having the accommodations necessary for autistic children and such. I thought she did a great job. I mean, very right to the point, not a lot of like fluff and kind of dancing around it. I thought it was a very well done interview as far as kind of her giving her perspective as far as like trying air travel, as well as trying just like a straight up car trip. Lee and I find ourselves in the same boat, honestly, because I mean, we have our uh, two autistic daughters. So sometimes travel can be a bit tricky for us and we kind of manage it as best we can. Some tricks work, some not so much. (laughs) I would say for us personally, what has worked best is if ever possible, travel by car. We normally try to travel by car. I know that's not always possible, so that's not always going to be an option. But if possible, travel by car, because when you are traveling by car, you're in control of the situation. If your kid needs a sensory break or is having a meltdown or something like that, you have the ability to stop whenever you need to to give them that break. That's one of the things that I would recommend. Another one is with two autistic toddlers. So we went through that. I'm not sure if your toddlers are kind of like escape artists like ours. When we traveled with our two toddlers, we actually had a plan that we hatched every time we would go to a hotel. We would go and use early check-in in the app. And when you do that, most hotels that allow for early check-in, they will let you have this cool layout of the hotel on the app and you can select rooms based off of what's currently available. So what Matt and I did is we would always look for any corner rooms because the corner room would only have one wall with another person. That way, we knew that if our kids were going to be having some sort of meltdown or might be getting rowdy or something like that, that we would only be sharing one wall with another person. So we figured that would be much easier for us because less likely that somebody's going to, you know, call somebody on us. We also made sure to pick the uh, level that seemed to have the least amount of rooms booked. And you can tell because when you go to book your room, it'll show you how many rooms are available per floor. So we would purposefully look for the ones that were emptier. (laughs) We've kind of shifted more instead of air travel to kind of traveling by car. You're able to basically pack as much as you need that your car can accommodate instead of like if you're planning for air travel, you can only have the two bags. They have to be under 50 pounds. And if you needed extra accommodations, like both of our girls, when we go to hotels and even to family's house, we have like little tents that we put them in. So they feel kind of nestled in one spot with all their blankets and stuffed animals. But I can't imagine trying to travel with two tents, car seats and everything just by air. I think I feel like it would be very difficult, especially at the younger ages. So we're definitely more fans of road trips than flying by air right now. (laughs) Yeah. And the reason we brought the tents is because the tents were zippable. We were able to create a safe environment for our kids so that when they are in the hotel, 
they each still have like their own safe space. We got these like pop-up tents basically and they just pop up and then you can zip them and they either have like the mesh so they can have like an open window view or you can zip them up completely and then they're just in this dark room. They also came with some like LED lights that you could put on the top so it would create the sensory cocoon for them. So that's definitely something that I would recommend. The last thing I'll say before we move on to the next question is another thing to keep in mind when you travel is if you're staying in a hotel or you're staying in one location for a long period of time, depending on what type of autistic kid you have, you will probably want to make sure to plan or schedule some sort of outdoorsy type of thing where you can get them out of the hotel room to kind of exert that energy. What Matt and I always do when we travel is we go on Google Maps and we're instantly trying to locate all the local playgrounds. So we're like, okay, where are the parks? Let's find them. If we're doing like a long road trip, like sometimes we'll do like a 10 hour road trip, we will sometimes look for those parks as like a rest stop area. So we'll intentionally rest at a park so that we can have some food and maybe like sit at like a picnic table while they're playing in the park. And then they can stretch and get all that energy out. And then we can put them back in and they're like energized for the other leg of the trip. That's just a couple things. But again, I'd recommend listening to that episode with Don M. Barclay on our podcast. Do you have another one, Matt? Yes. Here you go. All right. So this one was submitted by email, it looks like. So my kids keep taking off their clothes no matter what I try. How do I stop this from happening? That one's fun. <laughs> we still sometimes fall into that category, don't we? Well, not, not us. Not us but, right. <laughs> the kids, the kids, the children. <laughs> well, there's a couple of different things that you can do for that. Um, I know that for certain kids, the stripping tends to be for different reasons. Usually it's like a sensory related reason. It can be like for a typical toddler. I mean, if they're a toddler, even like normal toddlers do that. And that could just be like mischievous exploration, essentially. But if they're older, they're past that toddler stage and they're still doing it. There's a couple things you can do. The most common of these that I've heard people do is they get like an oversized onesie and just put the onesie on your child and then put your clothes on top of that. Some kids have figured out how to unsnap those because the snaps are on the bottom. If your kid is smart, they might be able to outwit that system. What I have found might be a little more effective is actually going for ballet leotard. And they do make those for both male and female. But there's a specific kind that has kind of like sleeves to it that go up to the knee, kind of like shorts. So that is basically a full bodysuit, but it's sleeveless on the arms and then it goes up to the knees. That is a lot more difficult and challenging to get out of. I don't think I've seen like a kid be able to weasel their way out of that one yet. So that's usually the recommendation that I have, not just for kids who can't keep their clothes on, but also for the ones who are doing like the fecal smearing and are like digging in their diapers. That's another way to prevent that as well. So for the stripping, we try to find if there's a issue with the clothing itself. So our oldest, for example, she never likes to wear pajamas to bed that have the print of like a image or something. So if it's like a print on a shirt, she doesn't like having that facing out for some reason. So we have to turn it kind of inside out and backwards. So we're not sure if it's like the texture of how it like 
rubs against her or something. But for some reason, when it's backwards, it seems to be okay. Well, inside out and backwards. And then for our youngest, she doesn't like socks and shoes. So like we had Kiki shoes. Is that the brand? Yeah. Yeah. So it kind of like squeaks. So at first she was excited because she likes making her little shoes squeak whenever she taps the bottom, but they're also like a cute little animal. So she loves bumblebees. So they're like two little bumblebees. So that had kind of helped for some time, but even so if she sets her mind to taking off her shoes because she doesn't like how they feel on any particular day. And same thing with the socks. I mean, that's kind of a struggle. Sometimes she wears socks. Sometimes she doesn't. We try to pick our battles a little bit. Like if she's able to go outside with only wearing shoes without socks, we'll go with it. It's a challenge and it's not as simple as like, oh, I'll just get a different color shirt (laughs) or at least not our case. I mean, we try to get them something that they'll like to wear so they're excited to wear it. You have to take into consideration the sensory aspect as well. So a lot of times if your kid is past that age where it's just like normal toddler behavior, Stripping tends to be more related to like a sensory either need or aversion. Typically, if it's an aversion, it's got to be something typically with the fabric. And there's a couple different things to troubleshoot that. You can try different fabric softeners or detergents. Usually what people want to try is the ones that don't have any dyes or scents to them. So if you get one of those, I think they're called like all clear things like that. Just get the ones that are dye free and scent free that are made for sensitive skin. That can sometimes help alleviate that problem and solves it for some kids. For others, that doesn't make a difference because they can still fear the texture of the clothing. So what you'll want to do is look into sensory friendly clothing. Target has some sensory clothing lines that are made specifically for that sort of thing. And I think Walmart started, Amazon has some. The specialty stores tend to be really expensive. So while they do exist, I think they're cost prohibitive. So Target's probably your best bet for that. If your kid is older or if they're semi-verbal or somewhat verbal or at least able to communicate with you, bring them shopping with you. Bring them to the store and have them feel the different textures. Have them be involved in that shopping experience so they can help you pick out what those fabrics are that they like or dislike if they're capable of doing that. Otherwise, you'll kind of have to do some trial and error. But I can tell you from my own personal experience, I don't wear socks. Like, I can't wear (laughs) socks. I hate wearing socks. I tell people it feels like snakes are constricting my feet. And I also don't wear jeans. I exclusively wear leggings because jeans feel like sandpaper just scraping on me. So I really hate that sensation. So sometimes when kids are stripping, like it's because that's what they're feeling. Both of our kids like, what's a soft fabric that's like on their... The polyester blend. That's really Yeah, it's like the smooth smooth one, whatever it is. They seem to like that. And of course, anything soft, the standard like cotton. And I mean, we've never tried wool, but I mean, I can guarantee you that. Cotton is good, but I think what's even better in my experience is like the jersey knits because those are really soft and like they're stretchy. But again, it depends on your kid. Some kids don't like clothes that clings and jersey knit clings. Cotton doesn't cling. So if they don't like clothes that clings, cotton might be better for them. So that's why you have to kind of test it out with your specific kid and see what they like and don't like. And no one likes tags. (laughs) Tagless is a thing now. So look for tagless as well. Exactly. All right. Next question. All right. You kind of touched on this real quick. I'm not sure if you want to 
Yeah, so this is kind of a similar answer to the one that we just answered. If they're sticking their hands a lot in their diaper, usually there's a sensory seeking behavior in there. So one of them that you could do is, again, put on like a leotard or something like that on top of them so that they can't get access to their diaper. The second thing is, is kind of observe and see why you think that they might be playing with the mess in their diaper. Oftentimes, it's a sensory seeking behavior. And so if it is sensory seeking, I would recommend replacing that sensory experience with something that's similar but more appropriate. Offer them slime or offer them Play-Doh or something that is similar to that texture, essentially. When they're in that process of like, oh, they're going to go reach for it, offer them that real quick and divert their attention towards that. Now, if it's not sensory seeking, it could also be that interoception piece where maybe they're not really super aware of what's happening with their body. A lot of autistics struggle with that self-body awareness piece. Sometimes they're not really sure, what is this? What's going on? I don't really understand. When they're using the bathroom, they don't really get that connection of what's happening. So they might just be curious and checking it out and be like, what's this? What's happening? They might just be exploring. If that's the case, then you might just want to try some sort of fun education. There's Play-Doh sets, for example, where you can have like a dog that has like the Play-Doh and the dog will go. So you can use like things like that to explore what that is and then get like kids books that explain that. But again, you're diverting their attention away from fecal smearing, essentially, to something that's a little bit more appropriate. I say redirect as best you can. I mean, I I think when our girls had kind of started to show any interest in that, I think they were a little early at the time, but we tried to work that into kind of like the potty training process to kind of showing them like, okay, like when this happens, this is when we try to go to the potty. They were still probably like a year out from like actually succeeding there, but we had tried to use it as like a potty training introduction, but it really depends on the age of the child and um, where they are uh, developmentally as well. All right, next one. Let's see. I've gone through three TVs that have broken, been broken by my child throwing things. What do I do? This is the worst. And we have been there. (laughs) I think I almost cried when that happened because it was my first TV. It was like a large, it was like what, a 50 inch TV or something like that. I think it was 50 inches. It was the first TV that I had like saved up with for like my first job. And I put a lot of time into that television, like in terms of like saving up for it. And I had it for several years because we ain't rich. We can't just buy TVs. <laughs> and so we had our TV down and then our oldest child, she just gravitates to the TV. Even to this day, she gravitates to the TV. I think the lights flashing and also just like the songs and sounds, she totally is attracted to it. But at the same time, something about it triggers her where she wants to throw things at it. So she did. She threw, I can't remember if it was her sippy cup. I think it was her sippy cup. Yeah, it was like her little water bottle thing. Yeah. Yeah. She threw it at the TV, shattered the screen, and I was devastated. I mean, I think I literally cried. We were living in a basement apartment at the time, four of us in one bedroom. Didn't have the money to replace it. So that, I get that. That is devastating. So here, let me give you some tips on what we learned. Two best tips I have for that. Actually, I've got got, three. I've got three. I was going to say triple triple threat. (laughs) Yeah, because we wanted to make sure it didn't happen again. And it has not happened again. Number one, you can get a plexiglass shield for your television. You can find these on Amazon, depending on the size of your television, they can get a little pricey. For a 50 inch TV, I think ours cost around $200. While that is expensive, it's way cheaper than having to replace a 50 inch TV. That's the first thing I would recommend is get that plexiglass. However, the plexiglass 
does not really protect from like brute force. So if they throw something hard enough, it is still going to impact the television. So we got this baby gate and we installed it around the entertainment center and we kept it out a couple feet strategically based off of what her throwing length was. So like however far her throw could go, we based it off of that distance and then put the baby gate around that TV so that even if she threw something, it wouldn't hit the TV. Do you want to mention the third one? Third one is make sure you mount the TV high. If you got those three things that hopefully will keep them away from the TV and then the TV protected and then up elevated so they can't smack it from the ground. They have to actually throw something hard enough to hit the plexiglass and destroy the TV. And then you watch them like a hawk whenever they're by the TV. (laughs) I think we actually have four then because that wasn't the one I was thinking of. Oh, what was yours? The fourth is a projector. Get a projector. Oh, well, that I is like, like the best one. Sure. Yeah. The best thing sometimes to protect your TV is to get rid of your TV. And that's ultimately what we did and is the most stress-free way. If you get a projector, the cool thing about that is you get a super big screen TV and your kid can't break it. So they can throw all they want at it and they're just going to be throwing stuff at a wall. So you'll never be able to really damage it. And our kids got a kick out of it. They really enjoyed it. So that was like a super success for us. That's true because I mean, they're obsessed with lights and they like the idea of it projecting onto a wall so they could get up and kind of dance with the characters. So yeah, I totally forgot about the projector too. (laughs) All right. It looks like we have another question from Matthew here. Do you have suggestions for making friends with other parents of autistic kiddos? We found that our friends with neurotypical kids don't necessarily understand how, why our kids can have a meltdown at any given time. We've actually been thinking about doing an episode on this because this is so incredibly true. First and foremost, we actually host a virtual monthly parent support group through Autism Wish and the Embracing Autism podcast. If you go to our facebook.com slash at Autism Wish, we have the group linked to that on there on that page. We meet on the first Tuesday of every month at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And it's just a totally safe space for parents to get together. It's been running for about a year or so. So people who come to that are fairly regular now and everyone kind of is starting to get to know each other. We do have new people coming pretty much every week. That space is hosted by me. So I'm there every time. And it's meant to be a safe space. So no question is dumb. Nothing is considered too taboo to ask. Like it's just an honest, safe space for you to be able to hang out with other parents who get you. And then the other thing I would do is look for a local Facebook group to your area. I always seek those out when I'm moving to places. I check Facebook first and see, is there a local autism parent group here? If there isn't, I create one. In the time that it took me to create one and then actually move down here, my group already had like 170 people in it. So there are people You just have to kind of look for them. And sometimes you have to create that group. And the thing that I recently, I mean, found out there's something called, I think it's like extra special people. ESP. Yes. Yes. So she mentioned like even in our local area that they have like little sports programs and whatever. And she was saying that they have like uh, sports camps or whatever, where they pair the autistic child with like a, um, like a teenager to help them play like baseball or soccer, for example. And they kind of like travel around with them and help them and assist them with playing the sport. I mean, and it's all geared towards the special needs community. So, I mean, it's a, a, a safe place for kind of the kids to go. Cause I know when we went to our local parks and rec, they, they basically told us what it's all inclusive, which means it's really not 
because if you have like one or two kids that are not neurotypical, they're either going to be sitting on the bench or if they go and play, they have no idea what's happening or what they're doing. The extra special people sounded like a place for children with uh, special needs to kind of come. From what I've heard, it sounds like the families also get involved and you kind of have like a camaraderie among like parents because you're all kind of in the same boat there for your children to have this fun experience of playing sports when you might have ordinarily not had that opportunity if you're given the standard parks and rec of everything's inclusive until it's not. not. (laughs) Yeah, so so definitely check out your local community and see if there are those types of programs there. I'm not sure if ESP is a national program or a state program because we're kind of new to it, but they do do things like parents nights out. They'll do things where only the parents go out and they all hang out and do like a sip and paint or something like that. Be on the lookout for that in your local community. You can usually find those through local charity organizations. And you can usually find those through your local therapists. They usually, the ABA clinics, the speech clinics, they'll usually have an idea of those, as well as the special needs coordinator for your local public school system. Now, this is all theoretical for us because we have not actually gone to any of these yet. So this is just one. Did you? The ESP thing? Well, oh, not the ESP, but one of the local meetups with the parents. Yeah. Where was I? You were at home with the kids. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I got to do Anywho. it. <laughs> so, um, but the the ESP is all theoretical. We want to look into it just because we think our girls would have fun like playing soccer if that was an opportunity. But until we actually like go and try it for ourselves, this is just kind of like what we've heard. So hopefully your area has something similar that you can find people with similar situations. We've got another question here. This is Shanta Carroll. At what age did your child get potty trained? They were about ages two or three. We started at around ages two and three. It didn't end at age two and three. It ended closer to three and four. Initially, when we were potty training them, we kind of went through the traditional route of potty training, like you would potty train a neurotypical child. And because we were doing it kind of like the neurotypical way, it wasn't working. So it was literally spanning like a year of time of us just trying to potty train. It just wasn't working. So we basically started working with our occupational therapists and our speech language pathologists. We were working with our team to kind of come up with the best strategies to get our kids potty trained. We ultimately got them potty trained towards the end of late three, almost four for the oldest one. And then the other one, I think, was about to be three, too. So it took basically like an extra half year. But what we ultimately did that worked, and again, we do have a potty training episode on the podcast, so I would check that out if you need specific details. But basically what we found was the key for us was setting aside dedicated time to nothing but potty training. So we learned that with our kids, it wasn't enough to do it like when we were home from work or on weekends or in the evenings, like it just didn't work. They really needed a high level of consistency. So what we ended up having to do is take two weeks off during our Christmas vacation and every single day dedicated it to potty training. Like we didn't leave the house or anything. It was just two solid weeks of just potty training. But we were able to potty train them both right at that time and it worked. And so I kind of highly recommend that. Again, there's specific tips on how we did that in that episode. So if you're looking for the how, I would look up that potty training podcast episode. But of course, I mean, it it was a long process. We found out that being consistent was, I mean, key. I mean, it wasn't as simple as they figure it out. Now you're free. It's kind of constant reminding. I mean, even today, we have to remind our, our kids to use the restroom when we think that they have gone too long without trying just to make sure we're on the safe side and uh, kind of avoid some accidents there. So it's definitely a struggle and challenging as well. 
What do I do about family members who refuse to accept my child's diagnosis or judge my parenting? Oh, that one hurts because it's so true. (laughs) That one's hard. It kind of depends on a bunch of different factors, like how close you are to your family, how much you need that family member's validation. It's a lot of interlocking factors that will depend on that in order to get you the best answer. So I can just speak to you from my personal experience. And Matt, you've experienced this too. But for me, I always start with education. So the first thing that I try to do is to educate people in a very polite, kind of nice way. But I've learned from experience that essentially most of the time when people are dismissive of autism, it's often because they just don't really understand what it is. Most people have learned about autism through television or they've learned about it through the grapevine. Like they don't really truly know or understand what autism is. And like for me, I've got two daughters and in pop culture, you basically have never seen an autistic female. That's something that I basically just educate them kindly by bringing up resources There's a lot of videos that I might bring up from YouTube from renowned doctors like Tony Atwood and others who specialize in autism that show like this is what autism looks like in some cases and then feed that information to them. If they're still pushing back and don't quite understand and they're always like, oh, your kid's just a brat. They just need more discipline. Depends again on how much you want that relationship. If it's a toxic relationship where you don't get along with that person in general, I might just put like some boundaries there just, you know, for the safety of like my child. But if it's somebody that you actually really respect and want to maintain a healthy relationship with, I would just continue to try that education route. I know I always say that it's hard because it really is. I mean, (laughs) a lot of things are hard. The big one is the misconception of what autism is based on movies and TV shows that try and hype up various aspects or create a almost a character character caricature (laughs) of of what autism is. So like I even had some family members when we found out about the diagnosis, they would send me like movies, action movies where it's like, oh, one of the lead character is autistic and they're super great at karate or something. And they're like a super computer hacker and all this stuff. And it's like, okay, that could be one side. You might have a autistic child that is very smart in one area, but it it doesn't focus on any of the, the struggles, the challenges that they have. So it already from the very start had kind of a like want to say like almost like a superhero-esque like mentality where they're like, oh, they're autistic. That means they're going to be super geniuses and amazing at everything. And it's like maybe or they're going to have challenges and struggle and that's not even a component altogether. So that was hard for one because you have to kind of break that mindset of no, this is just Hollywood wanting to create a movie that they think is going to be cool. So I think that was hard to try and break that with family. The other one, as far as the parenting style, we listen to the advice and then we're like, why don't you try that? and let me know how it goes. We'll have like family members come over and they're like, oh no, you shouldn't do that with your child. At first we used to try and explain like, oh no, like they're autistic. This doesn't really work with them because of X, Y, and Z. And now I just kind of sit back and I'm like, oh yeah, why don't you, why don't you tell them that and see? <laughs> the and cynical see how, route. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it sounds like mean, like you're trying to like, I don't know, set the world on fire and just watch it burn. Just, But it, it gives them a quick reality check that, oh, me just simply saying this resulted in a, a meltdown or them getting really upset and I don't understand why. And then you can kind of jump in and be like, that's essentially why. Like this, this is a difficult situation for them. This is why we don't do that. This is why we do it this way. So, I mean, it's kind of a hands-on learning experience of sorts. <laughs> Boot camp. Right. Kind of a, yeah, a boot. Yeah. Boot camp. That's a great, (laughs) a great way. Just kind of throw it there. And then if they learn it, great. If not, you can't 
really do a great job at changing people's opinion of what they think of your parenting style. I mean, there I'm sure there's people out there that think that we're terrible parents. My statement, I guess, to that is we picked up the things for our parenting style because they work. We know our girls very well. We know what works with them. So they might not like how we teach them, how we work with them in certain aspects, but it works for who they are and what they need from us. So at the end of the day, you can think I'm a terrible dad, but I don't really care because my kids are striving to the best of their ability based on the principles and structure that we've put in place. So that's my two cents on it. (laughs) Anything else to add, Leah? (laughs) Nope. That pretty much sums it up. We actually have time for one more question here and it's similar. So it's a good follow-up. This one is, again, from Matthew that says, how do you navigate being in public with others that don't understand your kids' behaviors when others are visibly judging you that you aren't doing your part as a parent? So that kind of ties into what we were just talking about in the sense that sometimes that whole thing is judgment-related. Like, well, I would have never done this if I was raising that kid or in my time. You know, you get those little tidbits. But you also have to tie that in to the public with people who have no idea what your situation is. This is one of those circumstances that is highly dependent on your personality and what you're okay with and how you handle stressful situations. I definitely in the past have experienced a lot of like anxiety and I would get really overwhelmed with that sort of thing. And it would frustrate me because I care so much about my kid. I know it's not my kid's fault. I know that this person is the one who's being judgy and it's frustrating, but I've learned that that's totally ineffective. There's no point in getting confrontational. When I hear stories about parents who go up and confront these people really aggressively, I cringe a little bit because one, I'm trying to set an example for my kid. And if they're witnessing that, it's not super helpful. But two, we're not really teaching anyone anything that way. My passion in life is advocacy, like autism advocacy. It's leaving a footprint so that people learn more about autism as I leave this world, hopefully. And so I now have changed my perspective on those interactions to be more of a learning or teaching opportunity. So depending on the situation, if my kid is having a meltdown and people are basically judging me with that behavior in public, I don't have the time to deal with them during those moments because my entire focus at that time is to make sure that my kid is okay. So at that moment in time, that person doesn't mean anything to me. And I know that can sound like rude or dismissive, but it's just the truth. My focus is my child. They're what's important. If people are judging me and looking on at that time, all I can say really is like, so why? I have to focus on what's important to me at that time. And that is getting my child through this critical moment of the meltdown. Now, if they're not in a meltdown mode and maybe they're just doing something that's considered socially inappropriate, like maybe they're stimming really loudly or they're doing things that are considered weird publicly and people are maybe giving them looks or things like that. I feel like my mama bear might come out a little more there, but that would be a moment where I might start using my cynicism a little bit or I might have my handy dandy cards. Sometimes I lean on cynicism in the sense that if people if people start kind of mocking my child or something like that publicly, the autistic in me is blunt and kind of calls it as I see it. Not rudely, but kind of like, hey, I noticed you're looking at my kid. Would you like me to help you out there? Like, I just kind of make it awkward for them because then they stop. I'm not sure if that's the best advice, honestly, but that's what I do because I've noticed that people don't know what to do when they're caught in those moments. So if you make it awkward for them, they kind of 
of like run away. But the polite thing is these little cards that I have and you could basically print out some business cards that are basically like whatever you want people to know about your child in the most private way possible. Like I would not disclose their diagnosis or anything on it, but I would just be like, hey, my kid has a medical condition. These are their symptoms that you're currently witnessing. I hope you can have some compassion. Have a nice day. And you just give them that card because that's another thing that turns them off is like if you give them a card That means they know automatically that you anticipated that somebody would react that way. People don't like feeling like you caught them in that sense either. So it's a way to make them think twice next time they see another kid acting up. I I hate to say that I used to be probably one of those parents where if you see like a kid having a meltdown in a store that you're kind of like, oh, I wonder what's going on over there. And my first thought wouldn't necessarily be something medical or diagnosis related. So I guess I'm partially guilty before kind of coming into this world a little bit of that at least for us we try to focus on baby steps so we tend not to jump right into okay girls let's go to a theme park and see how it goes kind of thing we're kind of like let's go to a restaurant at a time that is not lunch or dinner where we know there's going to be the least amount of people there and let's see how it goes We always have the backup plan. If we place our order and we find out things are heading south fast, we can just get the order to go. So we start off small, small expectations can potentially, I think, lead to like great outcomes. I mean, if they are slowly implemented, I would definitely say if you're trying to go to take them to a store, I would start off with a store that's relatively not crowded and see how it goes. We used to have a lot of difficulty with our oldest child going grocery shopping and she would throw huge meltdowns. Mostly I think with the checkout, she wanted to scan the items on the little belt thing. Yeah. (laughs) So she wanted to scan the items, but when she wasn't able to, she would start having a meltdown and we still have to stay there for all the items to be scanned as she's getting upset. And then we'd have to pay. So we would notice that that was kind of the area that she needed to work through. So for us, instead of us going through the aisle where we have the cashier scanning our items, we would do self-check and then we would show her, okay, if you push the item across here, it'll beep and then you can put it in a bag. So, I mean, she loves to do the self-check, but it's gotten to the point now where she's comfortable enough. She's done the self-check enough times that it's not really new or novel to her anymore. So now she's okay. Us standing in line, getting larger, like a full cart worth of groceries. And she's okay with them all going and getting scanned. And she'll talk to the cashier about the beeping sound or something. But ultimately, we worked with baby steps. We got a small amount of groceries and we were scanning each one or we were having her scan it until that became kind of second nature to her where she's like, oh, okay, I've done this 50 times. Like it's not terribly exciting anymore. And then we would step back and say, okay, let's try it on an actual aisle with a cashier. And it seemed to work out for us. So that's kind of my one step is kind of baby steps can potentially lead to greater things if done appropriately. So I'm definitely a fan of that. And now grocery stores are, I hate to say, a fun place for us to go with the kids because they have a great time going up and down the aisles. The second thing is, yeah, it's difficult having people judge you thinking that you're a bad parent. But I also think the likelihood that you're going to see that person at the grocery store, at the mall, I don't know, in the parking lot, on a regular basis might not be as likely as we all like to think. So I know it's difficult when they have a meltdown in public and you think, oh, this is so embarrassing. I hope these people aren't judging me as being a bad parent, but I might never see those people again. Or if I do see them, (laughs) I won't remember that they were there. Even though they make a judgment about you, it doesn't really have any significant impact beyond that one engagement. So that's what I kind of keep trying to remind myself. Granted, I don't always do a great job of it. Sometimes I kind of get panicky anxiety a little bit because I want 
to resolve any meltdowns quickly and not have them linger, especially in like public places or like in like a parking lot, for example, where there are other hazardous items uh, such as like shopping carts or regular cars that are kind of flying around. So that's kind of my two cents on that. So. So we're going to wrap up now because we are topping off the hour here. For those of you watching, happy St. Patrick's Day. For those of you that are listening, happy one week after St. Patrick's Day. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining in, everyone. Again, please don't forget to like, share, subscribe. Your support helps us keep our programs running. So thanks again, and we will see you all next week. All right. Bye. Bye. This has been the audio from the Embracing Autism podcast live stream series. Please check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at autismwish to catch these shows live. Otherwise, stick around next week for our next episode. This is Embracing Autism.